Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So very exciting episode that we have in front of us. You know, today we're going to be learning a lot about building, scaling, financing, and all the good stuff that we like to hear. We're going to be talking about how this entrepreneur got the first customers, you know, for their business, how, you know, also they went on to landing amazing investors, talent, how they learned so quickly, how they went from nothing, you know, even negative, you know, 2,800, all of a sudden to having 16 million in the bank and many more exciting things. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Michael Vegasanz. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So originally born in Miami uh, from parents that were from Cuba and then also Puerto Rico, but obviously growing in a small farm with chickens and all the good stuff that maybe is a different picture, a Miami, you know, type of uh, different picture. So Give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Life growing up was was not very traditional. I I grew up like you mentioned, first generation American family. Grew up on a small farm with horses, chickens, and goats, and it was an amazing, amazing childhood. I had really amazing parents. I had the opportunity to grow up with my grandparents, who were extremely loving people, but. They were extremely aggressive and they were extremely, they were very, very strict and diligent. So from a young, young age, working for what I wanted uh, was instilled in me, uh, making sure that I knew how to work hard, making sure that I knew that I needed to do what I needed to do and that there were no excuses being accepted. That was stuff that was instilled early on. I was also very much pushed to be a curious kid. I was never told, oh, stop asking questions or stop learning or you're reading too much or none of those things were ever told to me. And if I ever had any questions, if I, have never, if I ever had any thoughts, all of those things were prompted and supported. And so I was very, very, very fortunate in that regard uh, for my family and for my upbringing. Now, in your case, uh, you wanted to eventually go to Wall Street. But it sounds like uh, going to Babson and getting a scholarship there changed the course of everything. How was that? Well, it's interesting. I came from an amazing family, but we didn't always have a lot of financial resources. And so from an early age, I knew that I wanted to find a way to make money and for lack of a better word, get rich. And so I thought going to work on Wall Street would allow me to do that. And so that was very, very much the catalyst for why I wanted to go work on Wall Street. When I got to Babson, I was very much under the impression that I would go work on Wall Street, and that was my career path. What happened at Babson, if you think about the Boston ecosystem, Boston ecosystem, it's very, very tech-oriented. There's a lot of tech companies, pharmaceutical companies. And so I quickly realized that going down Wall Street or going down, down that route was not the only way to achieve my goal of one day being rich or making money. What I found there was I found that with technology, what it allowed you to do was it allowed you to really use technology to solve problems. So you could encounter a problem yourself. 
You could come up with the solution to that problem in your head. So you have an abstract thought. And then over the course of a couple of hours, a couple of days, or a couple of weeks, you can take that abstract thought and turn it into something concrete that can solve your problems and can solve problems for other people. And if you do that really, really, really well, and you provide a lot of value to customers or to people, you can extract value in the form of dollars, right? And I thought there was more upside and there was more enjoyment going that route than just chasing Wall Street and and, and trading and, and, and doing all of that. So that's what really drew me to technology. That was the big impact that going to school in Boston had on my life. So then what what about the... Um... While being there, obviously, Babson, an amazing university for entrepreneurship, one of the best. In terms of taking a look at problem solving and, and solutions and things like that, it sounds like, you know, ordering pizza, you know, is something that made you think. How is that? And how did that, how did, how did things unfold after that? Yeah, so that story is pretty funny. That, what happened there was one night I was in my dorm and I wanted pizza. I actually wanted pizza from Papa John's and they wouldn't deliver to campus. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if there was an app that let me rent a car from another student? And I shared the idea with my brother and he said, let's build it. So we built this app that let college students rent cars from one another. So think Tura or think Get Around, but just for college students. And we did that and launched it in between classes on the weekend just for fun. That ended up becoming one of the top apps on the App Store. It ended up becoming the second highest ranked car sharing app in the country. And within a couple of months, we had cars physically available on more than 500 college campuses in all 50 states. And even though that sounds like an amazing, amazing story, and we very much at the time thought we were going to be the next Mark Zuckerberg, it was a huge learning lesson for us which was just because you build a product that people really enjoy or that people really like using, that doesn't necessarily equate to a great business. And that was a huge, 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 huge lesson for us uh, with that first business. As a matter of fact, as we went into this new business, Lula, what we do today, part of the emphasis there was not only building a great, great product, but also being able to go ahead and actually make money and be able to do that sooner rather than later. And the reason for that was that first business, even though it was a great product, it was not a great business. And we ended up having to wind it down. So then how did that uh, unfold, you know, things towards you guys landing on Lula now and, and, and really thinking at that point, like what it would look like if you guys were to build this stripe for insurance, you know, as, as an idea, no? I mean, how do you go from that business that you had to close to perhaps, you know, what you're doing right now with Lula? Yeah, well, what we were thinking a lot about was the shared mobility market, the shared economy. If you think about 2017, 2018, 2019, it was a really, really challenging market to be in. It's still a challenging market to be in today. And at the time, there hadn't really been many platforms, if any, that had figured out a true path to profitability or to viability. And we had always had a pain point around insurance. And so it was challenging for us to purchase insurance as a small business. And we often felt that purchasing insurance was a lot like going to a restaurant where they give you the food, but no utensils. And what I mean by that is if you're a small business or you're a business in general and you go get insurance, once you get the insurance policy, the insurance carrier says to you, 
hey, it's really important for you to manage your risk. What do you mean? What, what does managing your risk mean? And then they say, it's really important for you to manage your claims well and have a strong claims process. And I said, again, what do you mean? Don't you guys manage our claims? And I remember the first time that we ever had a claim or an accident on that car sharing platform, I was at a friend's apartment in Boston, and we ended up having to go from Boston to Connecticut to the scene of the accident to try to manage it. And so we realized that we were not the only companies or the only businesses facing these challenges. We realized that car rental agencies face these challenges, car sharing platforms, Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, trucking companies. And so we began to realize that there was a really, really strong pain point around insurance and this insurance infrastructure. And so when we looked at the market, there were 12 insurance companies in the Fortune 100. So we said it's a really, really large market. It's extremely fragmented, low NPS scores across the board. And by the way, it's extremely profitable. If you can figure out how to build a great product in insurance, there's a true path to profitability and viability. And those were some of the things that drew us to insurance. So in March of 2020, April 2020, as the pandemic is hitting, college campuses are shutting down, our first business ends up dying. And when I say it died, it literally died. We went from having cars on more than 500 college campuses in all 50 states. We ended up having to shut down the business. We had to lay off the entire company. We missed payroll. Our company bank account went negative, so it hit negative $2,800. Matthew and I, Matthew is my co-founder and twin brother, but we ended up having to sell our cars to make payroll. And I didn't mention this, but we had actually withdrawn from school uh, to pursue this idea. So you fast forward to March slash April of 2020, we no longer have our scholarships. We, this business that we had been working on failed. We had to lay off the entire company. We missed payroll. We owed the world money. And, and it was really, really rock bottom for us. And we were thinking about, hey, this is not the end of our story. This is not the end of the journey. And we kept thinking a lot about insurance and the pain points surrounding insurance. And we said, hey, what if we could build Stripe for insurance in the same way that Stripe eliminates the need for companies to build their payment infrastructure? We said, what if we could eliminate the need for companies to build their own insurance infrastructure? And so imagine whether it's a small car rental agency, a small trucking company or Uber or Airbnb, imagine if they didn't need to build out their insurance infrastructure. Imagine if they did not need to have their own insurance team their own risk and safety team, and their own claims team. Imagine if all of those functions could be outsourced to a company like Lula. And so we started working on that right away. And by late 2020, we were in market with a product and we were generating revenue. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, 
to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a Series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So then I guess uh, at that point then, you know, when you're talking about generating revenue, I want to hear, you know, like how were the early days? How was like, you know, going to those first customers and getting chased by a dog or getting screamed at? You know, what were some of, some of those things that you guys had to encounter until you finally felt like you turned around, you know, a corner? Yeah, my brother, my, my co-founder, my brother always, always says something. I think it's extremely true. He says... And I'm a huge advocate for this. Try to go talk to your first customers or your prospective customers in person. And the reason for that is cold calls are really challenging, right? Cold emails are really challenging. Think about everybody that you're competing with in somebody's email inbox. Think about everybody that you're competing with if you're calling them. If you're actually walking into your customer's office or into your customer's doors, there's not much competition there. If you walk into 20 small business offices, probably 10 of them will kick you out, but you can probably have pretty good conversations with 10 of those business owners or 10 of those business managers. You're not competing with a lot of people once you get in person. And so that was something that we quickly realized. We said, hey, there's an opportunity for us to have face-to-face -face conversations with the customers. Now, one of the things that we also realized is B2B, there's a simplicity in B2B that's beautiful that you don't necessarily have on the consumer side. What I mean by that is when you're selling B2B, the value proposition is typically one of two things. You're either helping that company make money or you're helping them save money, right? And so right off the bat, our pitch when we would walk into the office is, hey, we can help you save money on insurance and make money on insurance. And this is exactly how. And that was the pitch. And we quickly just added it to a formula. I said, if we have a 5% conversion rate from walking into these offices or walking into these doors, I know that in order to get our first five customers, I need to go talk to 100 people. If I want to get to our first 50, I just need to go talk to 1,000 people. And so to your point, we would literally just go to, for example, some of our first customers were car rental agencies independent car rental agency. So we would drive to airports. Think about Miami International Airport. We would go to where all the small car rental companies were located. We would just walk office to office, office to office, office to office. We would do that in Fort Lauderdale. We would do that in Jacksonville, in Tampa, in Orlando, in Naples. And to your point, a lot of people got upset at us and screamed at us and kicked us out. And I even had dogs chasing me out of the offices. And certainly that happened. But hey, we in a couple of weeks, we had 25 companies sign letters of intent and 19 of them ultimately converted to customers. So that worked extremely well today. And by the way, we got to our first $30 million in revenue with a sales team of less than 10 people and no marketing. 
largely based off word of mouth that we largely built in those early days. So that works extremely well. I, I could not recommend it enough. So for the people that are listening to really get it here, what ended up being the business model of Lula? How are you guys making money? Well, in short, our business model is really simple. We have 12-month contracts with our customers, and we charge them a monthly subscription fee. And typically, that subscription fee is either per siege or per asset. We recently came out with a consumption-based model, but historically, it's typically been per seat or per asset. What does that mean? Take a small car rental agency, for example. If you're a small car rental agency, let's say in Orlando, you come to Lula, we're going to provide you three to four offerings. Uh, what does that mean? So the first thing is we're going to make it really, really easy for you to purchase insurance. So you come to Lula and within a couple of minutes, you could have an insurance policy. And by the way, there's not even a need for you to talk to a human. So you can get an insurance, really, an insurance policy in a matter of minutes for your business. So that's number one. Number two, it's really, really important for you to have proper risk mitigation and risk management tools. So you think about Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, anytime a customer signs up or a driver signs up on one of those platforms, there's like 20 checks going on behind the scenes. They're verifying your identity. They're verifying your driver's license. They're verifying that you have proper insurance coverage. I mean, they're doing a ton of risk management behind the scenes. So one of the things that we do is we make those tools available to everyday businesses. So when you come to Lulite, we're not only making it really, really easy for you to get insurance, but we're giving you some of the best risk and safety tools available on the market, making that accessible to you. And then lastly, managing your claims or helping you manage your claims. One of the pain points that we often see is small business owners, one of their vehicles gets involved in an accident and... And suddenly that business owner is having to manage that claim, is having to manage the litigation, is having to deal with third-party defendants. And so what we say is, hey, you simply just have to submit the first notice of loss. And from there, we take it all the way to settlement or to payouts. And so like that, we truly become your insurance infrastructure. And, and the business model is simple. It's, we have 12-month contracts with our customers. We charge them a monthly subscription fee. Typically, it's on a per seat or per unit basis. And we recently came out with a consumption-based model. So that's pretty much it. Now, you guys have been able to raise you know, quite a bit of money, about $60 million from some really amazing investors like Founders Fund, Cosla Ventures, or Bill Ekman, you know, to name a few. How has it been the journey, too, of, of raising money for, for a company like this? Yeah, you know, it's really funny because... I get asked a lot, hey, what's some of the best fundraising advice that you can give me? And what's interesting is that for the first business I mentioned to you, that first business, I used to think a lot about fundraising. So I was consistently thinking about fundraising. I was consistently thinking about VCs. And in many ways, I was, I was almost a fundraising obsessed founder. And, and so when we started this new company, since we had been so unsuccessful in raising VC dollars for the prior business, uh, we realized that we could no longer be dependent on VCs. If you think about 2020, which is when we were starting, the capital markets were pretty dry. There weren't many people deploying capital at that time. 
And so we basically said, hey, the only source of capital for us right now is our customers or prospective customers. And so that's basically where we began taking the approach of a company can be one of four things. A company can be customer obsessed, product obsessed, competitor obsessed, or even in today's day and age, fundraising obsessed. We said, let's be a customer obsessed organization. And everything that we do, we start with the customer and we work our way backwards from there. Now, the reason I go ahead and I give you that is I found that is the best fundraising process. What I mean by that is if you go ahead and you truly, truly, truly focus on your customers and providing them a great experience, really solving their problems, providing them a great, great experience. If you start there, it becomes much, much easier for you to actually fundraise. Why is that? If you're actually solving problems for your customers and you're giving them a great experience or a great product, it's going to be much easier for you to get customers. It's going to be much easier for you to charge customers and actually get paid. You're not going to need to discount or subsidize your product as much. You're not going to have challenges or as many challenges with things like churn or retention or attrition. And so what I found is that the best thing I did early on and that we continue to do is we focus on the customer and we focus on the fundamentals of building a great business. For me, the fundamentals of building a great business is focus on the customer, focus on building a great product, focus on great distribution and focus on great marketing. And I found that a lot of founders put all all that energy that should be going to those four things, they put it on fundraising. And it actually should be the inverse. You should focus 90% of your energy on the customer, on product, on distribution, on marketing. And if you do that, fundraising is going to be so much easier. So that was the big unlock for me. And it's worked out really, really well for us. Our Series A, I will be the first to admit, our Series A, which we raised in the summer of 2021, we, we raised that a little bit before the peak of the market. It was not a very challenging Series A to raise. Right. But a lot of that was the market cycle. If you think about our Series B, we initiated our Series B process March 7th of 2023. Two or three days later, Silicon Valley Bank blew up. Right. By the way, we signed term sheets within three to four weeks and we had term sheets from multiple firms. And why is that? Because leading up to the fundraise, we were super, super, super fixated on the customer, on building great product on distribution, on marketing. And by the time we got to the Series B, our numbers were phenomenal. They were great. So I find that the best fundraising strategy is just to go ahead, really, really focus on solving real problems for your customers, giving them a great experience, focusing on distribution. And it's almost like the score takes care of itself. You focus on those things, everything else comes much, much easier. And and that's that's been my personal experience. So in the, in that in that sense, you know, as we're thinking about the future here for Lula, imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision is fully realized. What does that world look like? Well, that world looks like today less than 10% of the world's population has access to insurance. And so for me that vision looks like 100% of the world's population has access to insurance. And not only 100% of the world's population has access to insurance, but we're even providing insurance in outer space. So international space stations, satellites, um, Starlink, SpaceX, multi-planetary rockets, all of those things have access to insurance. And a lot of that is made accessible 
and made possible because of Lula. Lula's built out that insurance infrastructure. Now, some things that are not as abstract, some things that are more tangible. I believe in the next 10 years, 90%, if not more, of insurance policies and insurance transactions will be powered by things like artificial intelligence. And so I envision that largely being powered by Lula, right? I think that insurance costs right now are sky high unnecessarily. And a lot of insurance related expenses could be lowered by better workflows, better efficiencies, better systems, implementation of AI. And, and I really do think 90% of insurance policies in the next 10 years could be powered by AI. And I think Lula can make that possible. So in that case, you know, we're talking here about the future, the future, but I want to talk about the past and, and doing so with a lens of reflection. Let's say I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time, maybe to that moment where you were still at Babson and, and thinking about a world where you could do something of your own. Imagine if you had the opportunity of having a chat with your younger self and giving that younger Michael one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I would spend much, much more time on the customer and solving the customer's problems. And the reason that I say that is, I think as a young founder, you often find yourself focusing on everything but the actual customer problem. So for example, I remember in the early days at Babson talking about, oh, I'm going to go meet an investor, or I'm going to go talk to an investor, or I'm going to go to this convention or this event, and I'm going to network. And I found that a lot of that time and energy would have been better spent talking to customers, learning about customers, learning about their problems, learning about their pain points. And in a lot of those events are deceptive. Uh, they make you feel busy. So they make you feel like, oh, I'm actually doing stuff. I'm meeting people, I'm interacting, I'm working. Um, but you're not really moving the needle. And so if I can go ahead and tell my younger self something pertaining to business, I would say, really go ahead and make sure that you're focusing on solving true problems for your customers. Start with the customer and then work your way backwards from there. I love it. So, uh, Michael, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? I'm somewhat active on Twitter. So Twitter works. It's Michael Vegas Sands. I'm also extremely, extremely responsive through email. So my email is michael at lula.com. Those are typically the two best ways to get in contact with me. Amazing. Well, easy enough. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.